0: My name is Patrick McGinnis, and I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic, and it's changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens powered by AW360. This is the show about how to have the power to choose what you actually want out of business and life and how to find the courage to miss out on the rest. I'm your host Patrick McGinnis, AKA the guy who actually invented the term FOMO. And I'm here taping the show in New York City, a place where even the rats have FOMO. Today we're gonna be talking about something I think is very important in life and careers, and that goes back to a quote that I always think about, and it goes a little something like this always have more than one string to your bow. What does that mean? Basically, it means that we should all try to do more than one thing in our lives and our careers. And I learned this the hard way. In 2008, I was working at a job on Wall Street. That's all I did, heads down, working all the time, thinking about the paycheck and the fact that I had stock in that company. Unfortunately, that company was AIG. My company blew up overnight and I had to figure out how to reinvent myself. And what I realized at the time was that I would have been much better off having built Built up a portfolio of activities and actually building something for myself well the good news is we have the perfect person here to talk about that today my guest is Dori Clark and she is the author of standout um, reinventing you and her newest book is entrepreneurial you and it's a guide to doing exactly that, building a portfolio career, monetizing all of your talents and skills and building a personal brand at the same time. Dory has a bio that is so impressive, I'm gonna look down and make sure I don't miss anything. She's an adjunct professor at Duke's Fuqua School of Business. She is a a writer for Harvard Business Review. She has been uh, given lots of attention and praise and love by magazines like Inc and the New York Times, and she's got all kinds of other incredible projects and skills that we'll dig into in the interview. So without any further delay, I wanna welcome Dory to the show.
1: Hey, thank you, Patrick. Wow, it's
0: so good to have you here.
1: It is totally great to be here.
0: Okay, so Dory, I always like to start with the same, same question, as if it's relevant, of course, which is how do we know each other?
1: So the way we know each other, Patrick, we were introduced by a mutual friend, a guy named Mike, who I actually don't even really know that well. But the uh, the, the the best introductions sometimes are the the sort of uh, strength of weak ties ones. And what I love about our connection is that it took some effort. I had to, I had to work to get this Patrick McGinnis guy to uh, uh, to to connect with me in person. I often organize dinner gatherings in New York, and I inter- and I uh, had invited you to. A couple, maybe even three, and you kept missing out because, or at least I would say, missing out because you were going to these exotic locales. Oh no! I'm sorry. I'm going to be. I'm going to be in Rwanda. Sorry. I'm going to be in South America, and it was always just uh, just crazy and exotic enough that I said, all right, well, I'll invite you to the next one. So I had to keep trying, but eventually we got you there and we got to be good pals. I had
0: to go to those places to be interesting enough to sit at your table. Because for those of you who don't know Dory, Dory surrounds herself with really interesting people. So I've met, I, I don't even want to go through the list of people, but the people that I've met, there are people that I keep bumping into throughout my life. People like Jenny Blake, who wrote a great book called Pivot. Uh, people like Chris Shembra, who has this dinner club called Seven Four seven. And these are people that, it's kind of like the matrix because I didn't know who they were. And then after meeting them through you, um, I kind of see them everywhere. So um, it's been a lot of fun to get to know you. And yes, I realize that um, I can be difficult to schedule, but you are as busy as I am. And we're going to get into that today because, what so I read your book, Entrepreneurial You. And when I read it, I was telling you this in the, in the, in the green room before, when I read it, I had I guess like pangs of admiration, I guess it's not a pang, but I had feelings of admiration because I thought the book was beautifully economical in the sense that you got straight to the point and there was really actionable advice. And at the same time, I did feel pangs of, I don't know if it was FOMO or stress or whatever, because I thought, number one, it was like retroactive FOMO. Why didn't I read this before? And also I felt like, you know, I wanted to just give it out to a bunch of people, which is... I think, I mean, that, you know, I will tell you that's a pretty high compliment for a book because I thought it was really amazing. And so one of the things that you said in the book, though, that kind of I thought was really interesting is you have something like seven different income streams. It's actually up to nine now. Oh, okay, so so I'd love to just, I mean, run through, what are the nine different income streams?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the most important point is, this has been built over time, this is not a sort of overnight kind of thing, but the nine income streams, so I do marketing strategy consulting, which is actually how I started my business, I do executive coaching, business school teaching, like you, I write books, uh, I do keynote speeches, I have affiliate income, I do online courses, and I also have recently started doing uh, like day long workshops, kind of in person workshops, and I also run year long mastermind programs. That's
0: incredible. And the other thing that I really loved is in your introduction, you have a little, I wouldn't call it a humble brag, but maybe a slight humble brag that you wrote the first draft of the introduction on a plane to Aspen and the final draft on a plane back from Amsterdam. So you're doing all of this. And you're also traveling, and you were just saying before you're going to South Africa, you're able to basically be mobile while you have these nine income streams. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it was actually an explicit goal of mine. Um, I decided maybe six or seven years ago that I wanted to try to transition my business. Because like a lot of people, you know, I started my own small business, basically, and I did this marketing consulting, and I found like I was just in meetings all the time. I was constantly schlepping to clients' offices and driving places and it it didn't feel very free. I was working for myself, but there wasn't a real sense of freedom. And so I sought very specifically to try to develop a location independent business because that was much more the vision of what I wanted to be able to do.
0: Would you call yourself a digital nomad?
1: <laughs> no, because it's a little pretentious. But yes. uh... I
0: also dislike that term. This is why we're <laughs> friends. Um, okay. So as I said, I really like this book, and I don't say that all the time. Um, but I wanted to better understand when you wrote this book entrepreneurial you who did you have in mind i guess who are you, who are you writing this for either in a current state or maybe thinking about people who might be converted into doing these types of things
1: well the first answer patrick is that i wrote it for myself because i am a big fan of trying to kill two birds with one stone and i was looking speaking at fomo right i was looking at some you know some of our peers people that we know and they were doing so well with different online courses and things they were doing. You'd hear about, oh, this multimillion-dollar launch. And I thought, it, you know, it's one thing to hear about it, and it's some mythical person, and you don't even know if it's all BS or if they really did it or not. But then when it suddenly starts to be people you actually know who are making millions of dollars from these, these launches – you think, wait a minute, what, what are they doing that I, that I don't know about? Like, like how how am I not doing this? And so I decided I wanted to figure it out. I wanted to crack the code. And so I said to myself, what could I do that would enable me to learn more about what they're doing and also um, be be able to have a really good excuse to. You know, to pick their brain, to use the the hated term. And I thought, all right, if I wrote a book about this, that is a fantastic excuse. I'm doing something productive and getting all this secret intel and have the ability to ask them really prying questions about their business models. So I, I wrote the book on a quest to figure out how to turbocharge my own business. And I figured that in addition to me, if I was interested in this, that there would probably be a lot of other people who were as well. And so to answer that part of your question, What I was imagining was probably a lot of people who are 10% entrepreneur readers and people who are having side businesses, you know, wanting to do something, um, in addition to their day jobs, maybe they want to do a blog or a podcast and really understand how to monetize it or someone who has been an entrepreneur and they've just they've been kind of burning themselves out doing one thing one thing one thing and they realize you know what if i could get a little more passive income or if i could somehow create a little bit more stability and security for myself by hedging my risks and having multiple income streams that that would be a good thing i was writing for those people
0: yeah because what the book does which I've kind of resonated with me is like, for example, for me, I have a book out there. You give me a playbook to say, okay, take uh, this book and then monetize the content by creating a course or maybe creating a podcast. I mean, I did that. I started working on this before I read your book, but then I was sort of like, a little validation, I guess, or working on a mastermind or creating different pieces of content around this. And what I think it boils down to, and you have this really interesting terminology you use, is the courage to monetize. When I read that, I thought that you're capturing something there because I think a lot of people may think, ah, like who's going to pay me for this? Or like, why should I be somebody who's standing up there as an expert on something? But you know, part of the reason for that, I think, is both of us know people who maybe don't have a lot to offer and are making lots of money doing that already. And you think like, oh my God, if this person's doing it, why aren't other people I know who are even more impressive? But part of it is also because there is huge demand out there for these materials. And if you have them, why not do something with them? Like how, I'd love to get your take though, I guess in more detail. That was my take on the creation to lot of ties, but
1: how do you think about it? Well, I think, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the reason I wrote uh, in Entrepreneurial You this chapter called The Courage to Monetize is that I heard again and again when I was talking to people about essentially their origin stories related to entrepreneurship, that there was a lot of fear around these early stages. Because of course, there there is a balance, right? If you have never done anything, if you have no track record, if people don't know you, it is kind of foolish out of the gate to be like, oh, pay me lots of money, pay me lots of money. No one, No one's going to want to do that. You don't have the trust built up. So for a while you are going to have to do things for free. And you know, that's somebody you know blogging for for a number of years or it's it's having the podcast or cre- you know creating content in some way so that people can begin to say, "Oh, you know, I like this guy. This Patrick, he makes sense. Oh, I love everything he does." You know, but once you achieve that level where people have kind of bought into the concept of, you know, okay, I'm on the same page as this person, you, you could theoretically, and some people do this unfortunately, keep doing the free stuff forever. Because there's a real ego gratification for it. Everybody's like, oh, Patrick, you're so wonderful, you're so brilliant. Because of course, right? You're you're giving oh, stuff you. for free. <laughs> exactly. But the, the risk to that is is a risk to you. Because unless you have, you know, some outside source of income, you are just not you're not gonna be able to have a sustainable business. At a certain point, you're gonna have to give up and say, Oh, wow, I guess I really need to get serious and earn a living. And so you give up all the things that you've built. You know, it's kind tragic so ultimately what we need people to do is thread the needle between those two things and say all right I will do stuff for free in the beginning I will uh, take the time to connect with my audience and build the trust so that they understand what I can offer but then there's a moment and it's a risky moment it's an emotionally risky moment where you say okay I'm going to put something out there now that people can actually buy. And a lot of times it actually goes well. People, you know, sometimes will say, "Oh my gosh, you know, finally there's there's something I can buy from you." Yes, but there there is the risk in, and it's in the back of people's minds that people might say, "Oh, you're such a sellout, you know, now you're charging us." And getting over that hump is what is necessary to be able to be a successful and sustainable entrepreneur.
0: I totally... it's so interesting because if you think about the last fifteen or twenty years for the internet, right? So much content has gone from paid to free that we have all been accustomed to. Whether we're creators or consumers, we are accustomed to giving things away. Like Huffington Post is a great example. Um, Huffington Post came out; it was very prestigious to write for them, even though the reality is that it was pretty. It was kind of like the um, it was kind of like the most porous airport security you could imagine, right? Like. It looked cool from the. It looked like very hard to get in, but it wasn't as hard as it looked at all.
1: But it was. A, it was a little hard, but mostly because they were just very poorly organized. <laughs>
0: so yeah, and so people would. I remember going to cocktail parties. This is a long time ago. Like people would say, like I was a writer, and I was sort of like that is, you know, I wrote one article for HaPo. This is not, you know, I'm not a writer. Let's let's all be serious here. But I was willing to trade. My hard work and my ideas for the promotion, because that was what people were doing at the time. And I think you're right; it's all about creating sustainable business here. And if you are creating value, value, quality content, it's real importance to be able to find a way to get people to pay for it, so you can continue to do it over and over and over again. Yes, Uh, for sure. Wow. Um, And so you kind of put together a menu. I think about as I read the book, you've got a bunch of chapters, and each one is like offers us um, something we could potentially do how do I you know like let's take me for an example right Um, or you for an example Um, How do you choose where to start where to focus what not to do kind of how to organize that business plan
1: yeah. So in Entrepreneurial U, I actually, in some ways, it, it is very much a menu. I, I certainly don't recommend that, that people dive in and, and do every money-making strategy That'd be the FOMO like, way to do it, right? That would, yes. definitely. Um, but but in, in in sort of a broad brushstroke, I actually did it uh, kind of chronologically in that the, the easiest place to, to enter, the lowest risk thing, is essentially one-on-one coaching or consulting. If you have a business that's driven by ideas, you might as well do something that doesn't have a lot of startup costs and where you can get a client immediately. It's like low-hanging fruit, right? So let's let's pretend you're Patrick. You have this expertise in uh, 10% entrepreneurship. You know, help, helping people sort of experiment with that on the side. So if that's the case. The, the simplest thing you can do, even if no one has ever heard of you, even if, you know, let's pretend you hadn't written a book, right? You're just starting, you're a guy with some ideas. Maybe you did this successfully on your own. Um, the easiest thing that you can do is one-on-one because you don't have to have a big following. All you need is essentially some friends or friends of friends to be like, Oh, you're doing this. You know, my buddy Patrick coaches around that. You can start getting some clients and things like that. It's it's not necessarily gonna be incredibly lucrative in the early phases. However, it's a learning opportunity and actually gives you material so that you can get better and that you can create content around it. So you start doing that. Then you have the material. You start writing, you start speaking, you do a little bit of those activities. Those, again, not going to be huge revenue sources immediately, but over time, you actually, of course, can monetize blogs and podcasts once they have more of a following later again as the as the following grows that is where you can achieve these kind of economies of scale that people talk about so i wouldn't necessarily advise someone to create an online course if they don't have any clients. And if no one has ever heard of them, like, well, who's going to buy it? You know, you're, you're investing a lot of time to create something like that. But if for instance, you've gotten a blog that now has, you know, let's say a thousand or 5,000 subscribers that get every post that you're doing, that's an audience of highly engaged people that would probably, if the course matches the blog content, be very keen to purchase the online course. So it's steadily building up and, and thinking, what can I do that's appropriate for, you know, first of all, it's interesting for me, but also is appropriate to the stage of following that I've cultivated heretofore.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. and. It is true that once you get that community, there's a, there's a famous blog post. I don't know. You probably know who wrote it. I don't remember, but 1,000 True Fans. Yeah, Kevin Kelly. Yes, exactly. See, Dory knows these things that I don't know. This is why I hang out with her. Um, but it is true that you have people that believe in your content and they're your evangelists. Think about how we all support each other and the group of people that we all know that write and are creating these these materials. We, are, I was talking today. You gave me great ideas who to have on the show because you know their content. You understand how it fits into the. Picture and you're willing to evangelize for them, um, so it's pretty powerful. Tell me about one thing that a lot of people want to do these days, like the hot thing to do. And you, you clearly have figured it out, is the speaking career. So you have done how many TED Talks?
1: Uh, I've done uh, three TEDxes.
0: I mean, that's pretty pretty good. Three is like that where you were in Geneva or
1: so I did one in Lugano Switzerland uh, I did one in uh, just outside Boston and then another in Worcester Massachusetts
0: Worcester is you know, people pick on Worcester, but as a New Englander, I can tell you that it is... Home of polar seltzer. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's even less charming than they suggest. kidding, Worcester, we love you. Um, so you've built a speaking career. You travel all over the world doing this. Um, you know, you, I remember you were going to Estonia one time, and you've done all kinds of crazy, um, interesting talks around the world. How does one building a, a speaking career as part of the sort of path that you're prescribing...
1: Yeah, so in terms of, of speaking, uh, the the most common myth, I think, that, that a lot of people subscribe to, and oftentimes it, it's not their fault they're subscribing to the myth, many people who should be more knowledgeable kind of push it, you know, agents and publishers and things like that, they'll say things like, oh, well, have you gotten hooked up with a bureau yet? And it's a little ridiculous because the truth about speakers bureaus is that until you are a big name... They really don't care about booking you because the, the money just isn't in it for them. They'll get about a 25% cut. And if you're you know, a newbie speaker that's getting $2,500 or $5,000, it's just not worth it for them to try to promote you. Um, what they want, of course, is the $50,000 speaker that they can get a huge commission on. So early on, a bureau is not, is not going to solve your problems. People are always looking for a magic bullet, yeah. and it really doesn't exist there is a process and i've written about this for the harvard business review and elsewhere we have a whole chapter on it in entrepreneurial you but the basic idea of how you build a speaking career first of all of course uh as with a lot of things you have to speak for free uh initially and that that creates a little bit of momentum around your name people begin to see you and then think of you as a speaker you get better frankly which is helpful because most of us are not great speakers initially um also really critical you want to put yourself in a position where you can get video of you speaking because no one, these days no one, is going to hire you as a speaker if they have not seen video of you as a speaker. It's very easy to get it. And so if if you lack that for some reason, they're just not gonna consider you. So a TEDx is actually great for that. But oftentimes, even if you have a small gig, um, sometimes the conference organizer will record it and you can ask for a copy of the recording. You can put it up on YouTube. Um, but even if not, you could pay to have a videographer tape it for you. And that is usually worth it. So you have this as a kind of marketing document, but if you are looking to get paid speaking engagements, the, the key here is that it is actually often counterproductive for you to directly be pitching yourself, uh, because people are just so used to being bombarded they they kind of put up a wall and they're like oh not this guy again what you need to do is think of a subtle way around that and there's two possibilities that i suggest to people one is this is where content creation becomes really critical and i encourage people to do it if you are creating content if you for instance are blogging in a publication that the conference organizers read regularly which is actually not that hard to do especially if you're aiming to speak at a very specialized conference Um, then they will often see your byline and become interested and seek you out. That's a dynamic that you want to cultivate. But if you want to be a little bit more proactive, you look at people who have spoken in the past at that event and try to see, are they friends of yours? Are they friends of friends of yours? Or are there people on the host committee that you have a connection to? You basically work your LinkedIn channels and try to get a warm lead uh, where that that person is recommending you to the decider. If you can get that, that is very powerful. But you lose points, ironically, if you go directly and pitch yourself. It's so. This is. I mean, again, you
0: This is. Uh, I've lived through this, and it's really interesting because it is true that the agencies. They don't, I mean, they're busy people. It's, you know, it's a, it's a numbers game for them. And so bringing on new clients, unless it's like really easy or unless you're Ava Longoria and it's just easy to pitch you, they don't want to do it. And at the same time, going out and trying to, you know, come out with your hat in hand doesn't work. So you have to be really clever and you have to be willing to do things in the beginning for free, as you said. But if you invest a little time into having a nice presentation, having a good speech. I mean, obviously the worst thing to do is spend a lot of time and energy with something that doesn't even work, right? And boring, have an engaging piece of content that's different. And that, and finding, I think, audiences that value your message. So for example, if you're talking about a particular segment or a particular life experience, you want to make sure you're in the right place because, you know, I'm not going to talk about 10% entrepreneurship with a bunch of people who are, you know, afraid of entrepreneurship. I guess I could do, I've, speak, I've actually spoken at an actuarial conference and it went over very well. So, you know, we can always convert people, but it is harder in those kinds of environments. One thing you talk about in this book, but you really talk about in a previous book, is about personal branding and staying out of the crowd, right? You know, how do you, well, we live in a crazy world, right? You think about just um, go onto your LinkedIn every day and think about the amount of just, Content right that's on LinkedIn, but most of it. I mean, there's a lot of fake news on LinkedIn, right? Everybody's an innovator, um, a disruptive innovator. How do you? Uh, you have spent a lot of time thinking about this issue of personal branding, standing out, being um, you know, being able to tell your story. How does that um, kind of play into all of this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, something that I hear often when I talk about personal branding, which I, I do pretty frequently at, at companies and things like that is people will often be on the razor hand. and be like, oh, you know, this, this sounds like good advice, but maybe for 10 years ago, because now, now things are so busy. They're so crowded. Well, you know, if I started, it would never get heard. And okay, so number one, 10 years ago, people were saying the exact same thing. You know, that's that's the most important thing to realize, is it's it's not it's not changing. It's it's essentially like saying, oh gosh, I should never buy real estate because the only time that one should have bought real estate is in the past, and now all yes. opportunities are closed off in you know forever. It's like now, you know, there, there's the there's the Japanese saying that the you know the best time to have planted a tree is twenty years ago. The next best time is today. Okay, I was gonna say that, but I had ten years ago, and I thought it was Chinese. So anyway, <laughs> but that, that's exact.
0: Okay, continue.
1: It, it probably is. I don't know. I'm thinking bonsai, whatever. <laughs> but uh, but yes. Yeah, so uh, so I, I think that what people don't realize is that even though yes, absolutely, there's a lot of noise. There is also this is the key a huge amount of attrition. And for me, what in in writing Entrepreneurial the whole process, all the numbers, all the statistics, the statistic that I think is most significant in that entire book is one that I found that was a study. It was a ten year longitudinal study of podcasts done by a gentleman named Josh Morgan. And what he discovered at the time, he analyzed every podcast from June 2005 to June 2015. And what he discovered, number one, there were a lot of podcasts, even then. I mean, in the, in the three years since, uh, podcasting has surged in popularity. But even then, there were over 200,000 podcasts. I mean, it's an enormous number. And you might look at that rationally and say, well, you know, gosh, how could I even try? Why should I even start? Because there's so much competition. But the key and what people do not realize, because there's always so much fanfare about people launching things or whatever, there's never any fanfare about them just abandoning them. What he discovered is that the average podcast lasted 12 episodes and six months so two two episodes a month for 6 months and then its creator just gave up just shut it down just stopped doing it and if you think about that that's the average right it's and, and when he did this study in fact only 40% of those 200,000 podcasts were were even active and he defined active so liberally as to be almost ridiculous it was that they had that they had done i think one episode over the past 6 months. You know, people give up in huge numbers. If you simply persevere, you are going to be outpacing almost everyone.
0: It's like your parents, I don't know if your, my parents told me like if you start something, don't quit. You have to finish. they made me I was I got hit in the face with a baseball in 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 little league. I was not I was not awesome at baseball. That wasn't where I was meant to spend my time, but they wouldn't let me quit. It, it's follow through and I think that's a really if you're going to start one of these endeavors, the ones you talk about, you know, you can't sort of quit, you know, on day three when it gets hard and you have to spend a little money, right? Um, I want to, before we end here, I want to hit on something. So Dory, as I said, you, you, you know, you've got your seven streams, nine streams of income, but you know, you, you're always developing new things and they're not just in the world of business and coaching and writing. You're also, let's see, you've got an Emmy award. For not an Emmy, excuse me, a Grammy Award for producing a jazz album, and you are working on a Broadway musical about entrepreneurship, right? So, the, on the surface, these things like they're these things they, they seem like they're very far outside of what you do in the rest of your life. Is that right, or are they far more harmonious than we might imagine?
1: Well, for me, my my interest in music producing, my interest in in writing musicals, I, I mean, they don't they certainly don't directly link up with the work that i do i mean much like we were talking earlier about the fact that i I went to divinity school and at the time uh you know i I did this years ago right after college but people were like you know what is it what are you gonna do with that you know the famous (laughs) question and the answer is i i don't know you know it's interesting i have always been a, a fan of the concept of optimizing for what is most interesting and you, you don't know and you can't predict what the connections are going to be. Um, but, but it leads in different places. I, I am very open to exploring and finding out. In fact, the music producing opportunity that I got, which, which led to um, being involved with this album, which won two Grammys, um, was because of a guy that I, that I met who crossed into my world because he wrote a business book. And that, you know, that wasn't necessarily his... His main thing, he, he writes a lot of different kinds of books. Um, he, one of them was a history of jazz music. And it turned out he's you know, a very serious jazz musician, jazz uh, producer. And we became friends. I helped him out. I did him a favor, and essentially, he wanted to do a favor for me. And so he brought me into this project that ultimately ended up winning winning wow. the Grammys. I got to you know go to the Grammys. I got to be on stage at the Grammys while uh, you know while the artist was accepting the award. You know, it was really a cool experience. Something you you literally just could not have predicted. Uh, but it, it came from being open and building uh, building a, a broad based network.
0: The way I think about that, I heard this awesome podcast from Harvard Business School. It's on their um, it's on their cold call podcast about this woman who was a jazz singer and a banker. Um, and she was this fascinating woman. And her motto was embrace complexity. So you're embracing complexity. Um, you clearly, I mean, it's paying off. You've got a Grammy on your shelf. Uh, so th- uh, this has been amazing. I feel like... I just kind of climbed inside your brain for half an hour, which was, which is a very, it's a very, it's stuffed full of a lot of things, but very well put together and organized. Many bins full of good stuff. If, uh, if people who watch FOMO Sapiens want to follow you, get in touch, learn from you, where can they find you?
1: Well, thank you, Patrick. Um, so the new book is Entrepreneurial You, and if folks are interested in diving more into that oove, uh, they can go to my website. It's doryclark.com, D-O-R-I-E, C-L-A-R-K. It has more than 500 free articles that have written for places like Forbes and Entrepreneur and the Harvard Business Review uh, that, that provide a lot of a lot of insight into different ways to do business better and, and hopefully uh, be living the kind of lives that, uh, that would make FOMO unnecessary.
0: Uh, we can't have that. Uh, there, 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 we cannot live in a FOMO-free environment or I'll be out of a job. Uh, but that said, if you want to learn about uh, more about FOMO, more about me or the 10% Entrepreneur, which we talked about earlier, you can go to my website. It's www.patrickmcginnis.com. Um, there you'll find, I, I certainly don't have as many free articles, so you should go to Dory's to read all the articles, but there's some stuff on there you might find interesting. You can also find more information on FOMO Sapiens. So thanks a lot for joining today. And until next time, take care of yourself, FOMO Sapiens.